Well, why don't we stand and read from Malachi chapter 2. And now this commandment is for you, O priests. If you do not listen and if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I have cursed them already because you are not taking it to heart. Behold, I'm going to rebuke your offspring and I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feasts, and you will be taken away with it. Then you will know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant may continue with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. A covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him as an object of reverence. So he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and unrighteousness was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many back from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men of men should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But as for you, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by, my, by the instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I have also made you despised and abased before all the people, just as you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in the instruction. Let's pray. Lord, uh, Malachi wrote these words some two and a half thousand years ago. And man, do these words ever apply to the context of the church today. If we would only as a church, in, as a general statement, not as a specific statement, but generally, if only as a church we would apply these words to uh, the life of the church, would things look different? Not only in Canada, but in America and, and any Western, all, all over the world actually. Just pray God that a revival would break out amongst the spiritual leadership of the church and they would take to heart words like Malachi. We look forward to our time together and uh, we look forward to discussion after. May your spirit be front and center as he works in our lives today, both in mind and in the congregation. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I met, as I mentioned last week, uh, we're going to start a new sermon series pretty quick in the future, uh, Second Peter, in continuation from the first Peter letter we did. But for now, we're going to be doing topical sermons until then. So last week I spoke about the process of spiritual growth in a believer. And if you weren't here to hear that, it's online now, I think. And uh, I talked about the process of spiritual growth. But uh, important in that was the role of spiritual leadership in fostering that growth. So yes, we're in, as individuals, we are responsible for our own spiritual health, but leadership has a role to play. And I spoke about some of the steps we're taking at Dennis's house to try to foster that. Conti today we're going to continue with the theme of the role of leadership within the church. But this time we're going to be looking at the kind of teaching and instruction that God requires from the spiritual leadership. What, what is God looking for from, from us? So let me give you the context of Malachi. Malachi was written during a time period in which Israel had only recently returned to the land after decades of being exiled in Babylon. Now the exile began in 586 BC under the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon at that time, and God used him to bring judgment upon Israel for their rampant disobedience against him. Uh, the blow Israel suffered was devastating, uh, not did only many lose their lives, but both their temple, which was the spiritual hub of their lives, and their walls of their city were completely destroyed. So everything that they knew was completely, was completely gone. 
So if you were a Jew back then, this is a very much a time of uncertainty for you, not knowing totally what things were going to look like. And to give you a timeline, again, 586 BC is when everything was destroyed, and the wall, the, the, uh, the context we're going to come here, come to in Nehemiah, the wall of the city was, is completed, and it was completed in 445 BC. So we're dealing with 140 years later. So uh, Malachi is about 140 years after uh, the, the original conquest of Babylon. But what's significant for us was the, st- the spiritual temperature of the nation at that time, especially amongst the priests. The people uh, who were involved in uh, providing spiritual leadership to the people. See, after the walls are complete, a major event occurs in Israel that I want us all to take a look at. And this occurs in Nehemiah chapter 8. So flip there now with me. And we're going to read from verse 1. And I would like you to notice in here, um, basically, the role of the priest and the centrality of the Word of God in providing instruction to the people and what's going on. So let's read together. And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women and all who could listen with understanding, on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women, those who could understand. And all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium which they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, and just go through the names, and if, go for, skip with me to verse 5 now. And then he says, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it all, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people were answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And then also Jeshua, Benai, and he names all these people. But look at who they are. Uh, halfway down the verse it says, These were Levites. Levites, who explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Here's the key. The walls of the city of Jerusalem have been rebuilt. The temple has been rebuilt. They gather the entire nation for a giant assembly to commemorate the event. And notice the role that the priests take. They, they, they gather somewhere in the neighborhood of 50,000 people around the, 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 the city of Jerusalem and they have this massive gathering and uh, they start reading the Word of God. What do we do in our celebrations? Whenever we have a commemoration or, mo- or momentous occasion, we usually have a ribbon, ribbon cutting ceremony, we have a few speeches, maybe a spiritual leader like a pastor might be there just as a token, but that's it. Here, this, this, this spiritual leadership is taking charge and the entire thing is just reading from the Old Testament the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and they're going through it over and over from morning to midday. Now, here's what's interesting about this, is like, uh, you notice um, that they take an incredible role in the spiritual uh, leadership of the church here, or the church, the the Jerusalem people, and they're 
and they're bringing the scriptures to them front and center, morning to midday. That's probably the neighborhood of eight hours straight. I mean, you think 45 minutes of my sermon's hard to listen to sometimes, and you probably think, when's this ever going to end? These guys were there for eight hours in a row in one shot. And this is incredible because it's not just that they're providing teaching, it's the kind of teaching they're providing. So it's not just, it's not liturgical, it's not rote, it's not another language that the people can understand, which we know some priests do, not to name any names or anything, but, um, but you, you know, like, uh, this is in a, in a language and in a way that is completely understandable to the people. Verse 8 is so key, it, or verse 7 and 8, it says, They explained the laws of people while they remained in their place, and they translated to give them sense so they could understand their reading. So they're unpacking the scriptures, making it, making it known to them how it applies to their lives, uh, what is right doctrine, what's wrong, what's right living, what's wrong living, and so on. And so they're just taking this uh, to heart, and it's just an incredible scene in Israel. As about 50,000 people or so are listening to the priests unpack the Word of God in a way that makes sense to their lives, and they can own it for themselves. But what I don't want you to miss, that we haven't sort of read totally yet, is the response of the people in relationship to the Word of God. You see, when Ezra, Ezra read in verse 5, what did the people do when they heard their law being spoken for the first time in years? They all stood up. And you wonder why we stand and read the scriptures at Genesis House? We actually just apply the principle from this passage. This is where we get it from. These people stood in respect of the Word of God, and we stand because of this passage here. Do we have to? No, but we do in, in modeling these people. Another response from the people in relation to the law was in verse 9. We haven't read this, but you can pick it up here in verse 9. The people begin weeping when they heard the words of the law. In verse 12, they continue by throwing a great party. So this is all happening in one day. They haven't heard the law read and explained like this and goodness knows how long. It's making sense. They understand it. The priests have taken charge of the spiritual temperature of the nation. And look what happens. People are standing up in reverence for God's word. They're weeping in response to God's word. And they're throwing a great party in response to God's word. This all happens in one day, but there's more in days to follow. Look at in verse 8, chapter 8, verse 13. This is the second day now and more of the same, more reading of scripture. And it produces a spiritual hunger in the fathers in the homes. Look at 8.13. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' households of all the peoples, the priests and the Levites were gathered to Ezra, the scribe, that they might gain insight into the words of the law. So these dads, these, these men, have probably been spiritually dormant for years and years and years. After hearing this one day of Bible teaching, eight hours long, they, 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 and they're just completely, they're just completely convicted by what they're listening to. And they want to hear more. So it's producing a spiritual revival amongst the men in the nation. And then we, we move, uh, they even reinstitute the Feast of Booths, which is an eight day celebration in, in verses uh, 15 forward. But there's one more key thing that happens in, in this time. These are, this is 24 days later after the first initial day of Ezra reading. And look at verse 9, or sorry, chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. It says, Now on the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting and sackcloth with dirt upon them. The descendants of Israel separated themselves from all the foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And while they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord of the God for a fourth of the day and for another fourth. They confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. 
See, the first thing they did on the 24th day was they separated themselves from the ways of the nations surrounding them. They made a distinction. We're going to walk away from who the nations are and their lifestyle, and we're going to dedicate ourselves to the Lord fully. In chapter 10, 28, if you want to re reference this later, they actually enter into a covenant where they all sign a document saying we agree to, to separate ourselves from the people of the land to the point that they actually said if we don't obey the Lord, we, we actually will receive the curses that He has like, basically planned for us. That's how dedicated they were to this covenant. And, and so we have this separating themselves from the ways of the nations because the word of God was spoken by Ezra and all the spiritual leadership, the Levites, the priests. And then we have here them confessing their sin in response to the, God, in response to the word of the Lord. In verse 3. And we also have them after all of this going into appropriate worship. And again, the key you don't want to miss is that this was only possible because the priest's role, which they were given, was to handle the word of God accurately and to teach scripture. And because this happened and they took their role responsibly, basically a, 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 like a sort of revival broke out in Israel. They're standing, they're crying, they're throwing parties, they're confessing sin, they're worshiping, they're separating themselves and so on and so forth. Something that hasn't happened for decades in Israel. So the spiritual leadership are on fire for the Lord and the people have responded. But sadly, this didn't last long. Fast forward to the book of Malachi and you'll notice here that the priesthood has broken down. You know what's crazy about this? You might think, oh, 100 years, 200 years has gone by. According to the research I did, this is a minimum of only 10 years, maximum 20 years later. So you go from this incredible revival and you go only 10 to 20 years later and Malachi shows up on the scene and look at the catastrophe the priesthood is in. And we pick up the nature of the problem in verse 1. And now the commandment is for you, O priests. If you do not listen and if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. And indeed I have cursed them already because you are not taking it to heart question is, how are these men not showing God honor? Because that's what he accuses them, of, accuses them of, is lack of honor for his name. Well, remember that priests were mediators between the people and God, and one of the ways they did that was to do animal sacrifices. God had strict guidelines as to the kind of animals to be sacrificed and the way they were to do it, and it was to be the best and most valuable of their flocks, uh, animals considered ceremonially clean by God's standards. But the priests here were not doing that. Instead, they were sacrificing animals that were ceremonially unclean. And if you look in chapter 1, uh, starting at around verse 8, he's, they were presenting blind animals, lame animals, and sick animals. So the worst of their flocks, not the best of their flocks. And so as a result, in verse 6 of chapter 1, God not only accuses them of dishonoring His name, but despising His name as well. So He's saying, because you're bringing animals like this, you're bringing the worst of your flocks, the ones that are sick and lame and blind. You actually hate me. And you dishonor me. What the priest should have been doing is refusing to re accept those animals and telling the people that this is ridiculous and they should be rebuked for it and called out for their sin, for their disdain for God. But they didn't do that. 
And so, and so we can see God's heart in verse 10 about the priest's lack of willingness to stop this going on. Look at chapter 1, verse 10. He says, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. Remember, when you came to the temple, you had to walk through the gates to bring your animals. And he's like, and so they were just freely walking in there. And God's saying, isn't there one priest in Israel who will stand up and shut that door to prevent this from happening? Oh, there would be just one person in Israel that would do this. And you're not doing it. Not one priest had stepped forward to honor the Lord. And so what is God left to do? He loves them. He, he, Israel are chosen people. But he has no, but no, nothing left to do but warn them and, and give them strict judgment. And so he says, I will, he says there, I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings and indeed I've already cursed them because you're not taking it to heart. So what was the nature of the curse? How did he do this? Well, there's an answer provided in our text, but let's look at extra uh, biblical sources first where this was uh, laid out in numbers. So, no doubt, this would include physical and material blessings for the priests. Financial. It would have hurt them in their pocketbooks. If you want a cross-reference, just write down Numbers 18. Now, remember, remember God's instruction to the Israelites? He says, the way you, the, the, the Levitical priesthood is taken care of is through your tithes and offerings. So the people responsibly uh, bring in their money, bring in their grain, and so you get fed and you get uh, financial contributions, and that's how I take care of you. So somehow then, God was going to, and had already started, cursing their physical provisions uh, in the way they're being taken care of. Also, there were spiritual blessings that God, that these people had, that the priests were given, that were going to be cursed. Uh, was, these are blessings that were pronounced over the people. And number six is very interesting because I've, I, uh, you, you've, you've probably heard this at weddings and at different uh, funerals and all sorts of kind of things. And it's a kind of like, a, it's kind of like 1 Corinthians 13 and love. Love is patient, love is kind. And everybody reads it at their wedding, secular and, you know, whatever. And uh, th this always happens to this benediction. And I thought I'd show it to you because the context is interesting. You know this one, the Lord bless you, keep you, the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you, the Lord lift up his countenance on you. That's, this is from number 613. That's what the priests were to say to the people. And he says here, speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, that quote, and then it says, so they shall invoke my name on them, the sons of Israel, and then I will bless them. So somehow by these priests saying this, God had a special blessing for the people. So he's saying, uh, by the way, the cursing on your blessings is going to be this. These, these things you say to the people will not invoke my name on anymore. I'm no longer doing this for you. So he's going to curse them in the physical realm, the financial realm, and in the spiritual realm. But there's an interesting curse found in our, in our uh, verse directly, in verse 3. He says, Behold, I'm going to rebuke your offspring. I will spread refuse on your faces the refuse of your feast, and you will be taken away with it. Now, I bet all of you have a visual of what this looks like. I mean, you've all seen your little boys and girls when they're like one and two years old eat like a chocolate cupcake <laughs> and how, what their face looks like. I'm sure you all have pictures of your kids when they have that cute face. You might think, okay, is God actually going to do this? Is he going to actually like spread, you know, manure on their faces? Because that's what it says. It must, I mean, that's what it says. It must be true, right? 
well, I don't know if I'm disappointing, disappointing you or not, but I don't think he means it literally. I think this is symbolic, and you have to understand the context of the time to know the symbolic means of what God's getting at. So you remember the priests were to be responsible for animal sacrifice? Well, depending on the sacrifice, different priests were to deal with different parts of the animals accordingly. There was instructions for what to do with the hides, what to do with the fat, what to do with organs, and so on and so forth. Well, when it came to waste, like the waste or the feces found in the intestines, it was to be carried outside the camp. It was to be taken out of the animal and carried outside the camp to be burned and discarded. And everyone knew why, including the priests, because it was ceremonially unclean and not worthy of being in the presence of the Lord. So you can see what God's getting at when he says, I'm going to spread refuse on your faces. This was an unthinkable disgrace that God was declaring upon the priests. He's basically saying, I'm going to treat you like crap. <laughs> you are basically, you're so unclean, I'm going to remove you from the assembly of God and stick you out in no man's land, and you're basically going to be like, basically like crap to me in terms of the way I'm going to treat you. You're going to be discarded and burned in the same way. And so this was really a severe warning of huge humiliation and disgrace. He was saying, I'm basically going to remove you from your position of office and authority. You're out of here. You're gone. And so Malachi then continues in verse 4. He says, Then you will know when I do this, then you will know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant may continue with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I give them to him as an object of reverence. So he revered me and stood in awe of my name. Remember the Levitical covenant, the Levitical priesthood was established with Moses' brother Aaron and his descendants. And these men happened to be from the tribe of Levi, hence the title Levitical priesthood. Right? That's why they're named that. But the covenant was supposed to be a mutual one in that it, there was mutual responsible for their upholding their end of the bargain. On the one side, the priests would honor God and give him the respect he's due, reflected in the commitment to teaching the, the, the instruction from the, the Torah, the ways that he expected, and also in the lives of obedience. So as a priest, you honored him by the, giving him respect by the way you, you led the congregation of Israel and the way you lived in your own life. In turn, God would provide them with a life of peace, which is what he says in verse um, in 5. And so there'd be this, this sort of supernatural blessing and protection reserved for the, pre the priesthood. That's what he was saying. So in a way, verse 4 then is both a warning and a message of hope. It's a warning in, in the, that he's saying this to the priest. If you don't repent and stop your hypocrisy and just going through religious motions with no care for me, the fate I've just warned you about will ultimately come to fruition to the fullest degree. However, there's hope in that I, if you repent and I, I will forgive you and that you will continue in the Levitical covenantal promises that I've already promised that have been going down through the nations. And you, those blessings will be there for you. In other words, listen guys, if you mess around, you're going to be kicked out. But just so you know that I'm faithful, I'm still going to continue with uh, like the priesthood down, like down the line. Like I'm still going to uphold my end of the bargain here. So again, um, God was going to, uh, was reminding me of the covenant to say, you know, there, are, there is blessings for you if you go back to the way you should be operating. But you're not. And so this is what life's going to look like for you. 
So if this is going to happen, and these guys are going to be back in line with the Levitical covenant, massive shifts then were going to have to take place in their lives. And they were going to have to return to the faith that was exemplified by many of the faithful priests of the past. Priests that were operating like Aaron, and even uh, you know, in the time of Ezra, these guys back at the temple, uh, when they built the temple. Well, Malachi gives us a job description then of a priest. This is, the, this is what they should have been doing to be within the, the promises of the Levitical covenant and to avoid warning. He says this, True instruction was in his mouth, and unrighteousness was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from, back from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and a man should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. The first thing you'll want to notice in terms of the job description of a priest is he was to teach the word of God. He was to teach it. Notice three times in these verses the word instruction occurs. In verse 6, the word instruction. In verse 7, the word instruction. In verse 8, the word instruction. In their case, this is again the Old Testament. But this instruction then was not just a matter of like liturgical rote reading. It included how to live rightly and, and what, like what was right living and what was wrong living according to the Lord. Look at verse 6. He says, True instruction was in his mouth and unrighteousness was not found in his lips. He was saying this, there's a way that's right to the Lord and there's a way that's wrong. There's the you have to teach in a way that, that shows the right way to live as opposed to the wrong way to live. In verse 7, he says that the, the priest is to preserve knowledge. Now I looked up the word because I think of preservatives and jam and what that does. It, it makes it prolong. It's like, I'm glad I did the word study because the word in Hebrew actually means to guard. So it changes a little bit. Think of like a, like the Buckingham Palace, the, the soldier with the red jacket on, the big hat, who looks like he's like got a stone face. But he's guarding the palace. That's what the priest is to do with the Word of God. He's to keep close watch on it to protect the truth, which would require, on his part, daily study. Because he'd, he'd have to know the Word for himself to know how to protect it. He'd have to know the truth. He'd have to know what's, what the implications and applications of the word are, what's wrong, what's doctrinally incorrect, what's doctrinally correct, and so on. And one thing, he couldn't skip over certain parts of it. He had to know all of the law. He couldn't pick and choose what he wanted to read and what he wanted to hear. So the, the, that's the role of the priest. Well, in the New Testament, it's the identical thing. The primary role of a pastor, elder, shepherd is to teach the scriptures, to teach the word of God. Look at Titus 1.9. An elder is to hold fast the faithful word which is accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. In other words, if you're having a discussion with someone, you have to know how to basically, uh, if everyone contradicts scripture in terms of error, doctrinally, you have to know how to defend the faith. You also have to be able to exhort it. In other words, help people see the principal tr truths that come from the, the text and so on and so forth. So you're basically a defender of the scriptures. You're like that Buckingham Palace soldier with the word of God. 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of the Christ Jesus, who is judge of the living and the dead, by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season to reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. The exact same word as used in the Old Testament. 
It's sad to say that many evangelical churches today, and Protestant churches, where you could have shown up at one point and heard the Bible taught thoroughly through the service and accurately, is no longer the case. I'm not saying this is true of every church, but it's the sad state of affairs in a lot of churches in North America and even in, in, over in uh, Europe. And the key here, church, is that uh, there's no there's no chance that there's any change going to be occur occur in these churches spiritually unless they get back to the Word of God. Now, some might say, "Well, but my church does believe in the Bible. They actually talk about the Bible." Let me give you a story of the kind of thing I'm trying to warn against. I was asked about uh, six years ago, I think it was, to go to a church. Um, because I would be really, uh, the guy who invited me says, you need to come see God at work and you need to experience my church because it's, it's the, you, know, you know, I don't know what the word, not better, but just you need to come and see these speakers and how awesome they are and experience revival the way I experience it. And I said, sure, I'll go. So I went with them to this church in Calgary, which I'll name unnamed. And uh, they had like a 45-minute worship service and then uh, um, the, the speakers come up. And the guy walks on stage with the Bible. He puts it on the podium. And I think, okay, great. Like, at least it's a Bible-believing church. He opens the Bible and then doesn't even read from it, walks away, grabs the mic, and does a 30-minute speech about how he's, the God wants to bless the entire congregation. Never used a single scripture from the text. This is a revival meeting. So he was done. Another speaker comes up. He comes up from another country. I think he was from Africa at the time or Haiti or something like that from another nation he comes up opens his Bible and I think awesome okay at least he's going to deliver the truth he reads like one line from the scriptures walks away grabs the mic and starts talking from his own head after an hour uh, my friend Caleb and I we got up and left we just said we're done Bible believing Bible opened Bible in the hand church happened at our general conference in Toronto. I've been to two conferences. Guest speakers were called to be uh, speaking at the uh, conference. They both gave 45-minute talks. They, one was from Canada, one was from the United States. So this is like back in like thir around 13 and this last year I was in conference. So this is about three years apart. So two guest speakers, both gave 45-minute talks. One was, um, uh, they came up had their Bible, put it down on the thing, read the passage that, were, that the conference was based upon, gave a couple tidbits, and then started going off on a tangent about all these stories of experience and different things going on in their lives. And basically at the end, like Dan and I had our Bibles open, we were excited, read the passage, about three minutes in we just closed it and put it in our bags. We knew what was gonna happen. There was no point in using it. And um, we are, a, Bible-believing denomination. <laughs> now, in fairness, the bishop got up, who is our leader, and spoke from Scripture. So just to let you, just to put confidence in our denomination, I'm just saying the guest speakers didn't. Both bishops we've had actually have spoken from the Word of God. And actually, cool thing, our bishop will be here March, 3rd, March 30th or 31st to speak at our church. He's coming here to speak in, uh, in a month, so you have to meet him. So yeah, I mean, it's affecting, it's affecting my, I, I mean, I, I go to a church in Calgary, it happens to me, 
Uh, I go to my conferences, it happens to me, and I'm just one person. I could imagine the stories and experiences that you've had as well. Second role of a priest was that they were to model exemplary, exemplary lives of faith. Look in verse 6. He says, True instruction was in his mouth, and unrighteousness was not found in his lips, and he walked with me in peace and uprightness. Walking is different than talking. Walking in the Bible is talking about a way of life. These men, not only in uh, Ezra's day, were walking the walk, or sorry, talking the talk, but they were walking the walk. And that was what God intended. So, in their context, it would be very simple. Stop receiving the lame animals, the blind and, 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 the, and the sick. And stop sacrificing them. Take a stand for me. Walk the walk. Shut the gates. Do something. And teach truth. Well, it's the same requirement in the New Testament. We have to live by examples as pastors. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who was also shared in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording over those who entrust to you, to you, but being examples to the flock. What's interesting about this passage, which we did in a sermon a few weeks ago, do you notice that these are all character issues? They're nothing to do with teaching. Where is teaching here? It doesn't exist. He gives three characteristics of character in the way you're to lead the church. He says, be examples in those ways. How about Philippians 4, 8, and 9? Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good, if there's any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Paul, Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Some people think Paul's being conceited here by saying, practice, you know, be like me as a Christian. He's not. In other places in Scripture, he calls himself the chief of sinners. But he says, but I've been washed and sanctified by the blood of Christ. So Paul recognizes that the only change in him, the only good in him is because of what God's done in his life. And so he's bragging in that. So he says, you know, it's in that merits that you can, he can say, imitate me. Not because he's something special, but because Christ has completely radically changed his life. And that's the same for us as spiritual leaders in this church. We, we, we have to come to a place that, over, like, you know, that we can say, model my life in the area of finances, in the area of marriage, in the area of parenting, in the area of, uh, you know, anger, uh, conflict resolution, these areas. We have to be able to come to those places. Paul said, imitate me. We should be able to say that for ourselves as well. Again, that's why we're in a process. It's a, it's a process towards eldership. And, and we're not saying you're not going to make mistakes or there's not going to be sin. But the way you deal with sin even as a way is, a, is, 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 is teaching people how to model asking for forgiveness and different things like that. Even the qualifications in Titus and Timothy, they're all character traits. When you read the, the qualifications of like, you know, must not be addicted to wine, must not be violent, the only spiritual quality in that whole list is able to teach the Word of God. Everything is above reproach to the outsider. They're all character traits that the, the world around you would look at and go, I expect this in a Christian, I expect that in a Christian, I expect that in a Christian. And all those characteristics are there. 
And Paul says those are the ones we're using for eldership for the church. And the one that's spiritual is the one we have to be able to teach. It's very, very fascinating. The third thing the priest was called to do in the Old Testament was to call out sin in people's lives to bring them back to repentance. Look at verse 6. He says, He turned many back from iniquity. A healthy priesthood turns many back from iniquity. Again, in their context, the priest would have shut down what was happening in, uh, in Malachi's day, and they just weren't. And by the way, there's more issues than just um, animal sacrifices. The Malachi described a list of different things going on. They were divorcing their wives and things like that, which we did a sermon on about a year ago from Malachi. But they were allowing disobedience to flourish instead of obedience to be the marker of spiritual health. And again, it's the same in the New Testament for, for um, us as pastors and elders, spiritual leaders. Go back to 2 Timothy. Look at the bottom two sentences. It says, after he says, preach the word, he says, you be re- ready in and season, out of season, to reprove and rebuke and provide instruction. Reprove means to put to the test or lay bare or expose something. And to rebuke is to assess a penalty or to reprimand. So they're very similar in that they both have to do with exposing and correcting sinful behaviors or motivations found in a believer's life. And that's the elder's job. And I think I could speak for the majority of pastors and elders when I say this, but that's the least favorite part of our jobs. The least favorite and most scary part of the job. Very difficult because at least I don't, want anything to come between me and another fellow believer in terms of relationship. If I'm like, if we were really good friends and really close, or, or even if we weren't, it doesn't matter. It, I just don't want to have to do it. So I don't want to do, say anything or do anything that's going to put, harm, put out a barrier between us being coming closer as friends, or that you feel less cared for. And nothing puts a relationship on the line more than calling someone out for wrong behavior. <laughs> None of us like hearing that. If you called me out for something in my life, I wouldn't like hearing that either. I'll just be honest. Initially, but I have to walk away and go, if there is truth to it, I have to deal with that in my own life. But even though I don't like it, I've had to do it. I just on uh, Friday counted how many people have left Genesis House who used to attend here in, seven year, or in, five, uh, in five years. And we have a small congregation. I've had seven people in five years leave Genesis House over sin issues. All of them basically occurred over the kitchen table at their house. And then I never saw them again. I never saw them one Sunday. never saw them another Sunday. never saw them the next Sunday. And that was it. Seven people in five years over this issue. And does it hurt? Absolutely. Do I have a choice? No choice. No choice. On the other side, it's incredible when you get to be part of someone's life, when you watch sin occur, and you come in as God's spokesperson and say, hey, God wants you to live a different way, and there's change. (laughs) Because when you see the fruit that comes out of that, and their willingness to respond to God's word, that's exciting. I mean, I know what it's like for you, if you're a boss, or you're a coach, or you're a parent, and you watch... So you correct something in someone's life, like a kid or an employee or an athlete, and, and you see change producing them, and they do well because of it, you're excited. As a spiritual leader, as a pastor, it's exciting when you see people change. 
because of response to scripture. And again, it's not my words. It's the word of God speaking. Finally, and we'll finish with this. What's the role of a pastor or a priest in Malachi's day? They're to be known and sought out as a spokesperson for God. In verse 7. It says, For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. In those days, remember the fathers? The fathers of the households in Nehemiah? What did they do? They went after Ezra and found him and said, Can you teach us more? That's what a priest should have been known for. We're, as people, we, we don't know enough. We want to know how to serve God more. We're dealing with this issue, that issue. What do we do? And these fathers of the households came to Ezra and said, Here's, give, us, uh, give us what to do. We need to know. We don't know. And that's the same for us as elders as well. We should be known to be people who proclaim God's wisdom and not our own. Here's where I failed you as a pastor. Our elders in training will fail you as a pastor. If you go to them with a problem and that you have a 45-minute conversation... And they don't quote scripture once or give you any passage to go up to go off of life by. I would be nervous of that counsel because all that is is their their experience from life and their thoughts on life. You could just you can go to anybody for that. You can just watch Dr. Phil on uh, Oprah if you want that kind of advice. If we come to you or you come to us, we need to be able to give you chapter and verse and give you a means by which to base your life off of and not shoot from the hip and go, I think this and I think that. So again, the more we grow in our faith and more in our understanding of Scripture, the more we can also pass on. But one of the key things too is we have to be approachable. If someone's going to seek you out, they have to know you as someone who's God's spokesperson. That's what the, the priests were known for. That's what God's expectation of these priests were to be known for. They were messengers of the Lord. So again, our elders and myself were to be people that you to say, hey, I can go to them and I know they'll give us godly advice. I know they won't give us their own advice. They'll give us godly advice. And they're approachable. We can go to them and we can trust them on that. I want to give you a side note. This was not in my notes originally, but I thought it's important to say. People ask me all the time, how do I know when to leave a church? Should I leave here? Should I go there? Uh, what should I do? What do you think? My answer is always the same, and it's very, very simple. Are you going to a place where the leaders exemplify this kind of ministry? Are you going to a place where you're spiritually growing, and you know that when you go to them, you're going to have someone speaking as a messenger of the Lord? If, that, if, if someone says to me, should I leave your church? I say, are you growing there? Are you learning there? Are you spiritually being fed there? If they say, absolutely, I say, then don't come to Genesis House. Don't come here. Stay there. Well, I'm not really growing. Why are you there? they got great worship music. Give me a passage in the Bible that shows me that's the criteria by which you join a church. doesn't exist. They have a great Sunday school program. Gave me a quick passage that shows me that exists in the Bible. It doesn't exist. Those are preferences. They're not God's mandates. Likewise, if someone comes to me, you, if you start sneaking away and going to other churches, and you come to me and say one day, Andrew, you know I've been attending such and such a church in town or in Calgary, and I don't know what it is about that preacher or that, that those, those leaders there, but I've been growing like leaps and bounds there 
just a, you know, and it's been phenomenal for me and my family. And I said, what are you saying? I said, well, I kind of wonder if God wants us to leave. I said, I said, well, I'd love you to stay, but go ahead. Please leave. Not, I don't want you to leave. Uh, obviously, I've got, I could probably learn from that person. <laughs> but please leave, because uh, uh, I am not going to ever stand in the way of you spiritually in terms of where you're going to grow as a family. Never do that. And here's why. I may not see you anymore on Sunday, but I see you in heaven. I'll still see you in heaven. Because we're both Christians. And we're both pursuing the same thing, which is growth. So again, if, if you are helping people wrestle through whether they should come to a church or leave a church, that's got to be the criteria. It's nothing else. So this is what pastors are supposed to be like. This is what the priests were supposed to be like. But in Malachi's day, unfortunately, this was not the case. And here's what they were like in verse 8. But as for you, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by the instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I have made you a despised and abased before all the people, just as you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in the instruction. So how did this happen? I have absolutely no idea. But I do, in terms of the, all the facets, but we do know one thing, the word of God was neglected. The slow spiritual decline that occurred over 10 to 20 years was because the word of God was neglected. We know that for sure. Because in Ezra's day, they're preaching like crazy. Or Nehemiah's day, I should say, when Nehemiah's around. Yeah, Ezra is preaching, sorry, in Nehemiah's book. But Ezra's preaching, and the priests are all involved. The Levitical priesthood is on fire for the Lord teaching. There's a revival in the community in Israel. Now everyone's spiritually dead, including the leadership. What's happened? He says, why aren't you preaching and teaching the way, they used to, the way I would like you to do from the Levitical covenant, the way Aaron and his sons were supposed to go at it? That's what happened. Again, I understand the pressures, man. You want numbers in the church, so you want to resort to changing the shape of your culture in the church because you want people to come in. So you come up with all sorts of tactics to try to people bring, it, bring them in the doors. It may attract people, but it's of no consequence to God. He doesn't care. He could care less. What do we learn from this passage? Well, when the scriptures are neglected within the household of God, it doesn't take long for spiritual decline to occur. I don't have to say any more than that. Number two, when the word of God is taught accurately within the household of God, it can have a profound spiritual impact in the lives of the people. Stood up, weeping, feasts and festivals reinstated, confession, worship, rededication of their lives, signing covenants, this household of the fathers coming to ask for more teaching. What happened? There was nothing fancy. They stood up with the, with the Levit Leviticus guys, the book that you dread, and somehow brought that to life for the people that they're weeping over it. You're weeping because you want, it to, want to close the pages on it. They're weeping because they can see life in it. So I'd like to hear what they were teaching because <laughs> I must admit, sometimes it's not the most exciting book for me either. But they're, they're learning Genesis through, through like uh, the first five books of the Bible. And it's bringing life to these people. Again, um, 
It can ha this is why we have to stick to the scriptures and let God do the work in people's lives. And I've seen it happen in your lives. I've seen it happen in my own. The changes that happen in your lives is not because me or any of the elders in here have anything to offer you personally. We're all a bunch of dummies, like left to our own devices. We give you scriptures and, and if you don't know them already or help you understand how they apply to your lives. And the, that's the word of God that produces change in your life through the Holy Spirit's work. And I, yeah, I'm not going to get into all the things I've seen in your lives because it just take too long. But it's been great to watch. Finally, church leadership that honors God will A. Accurately handle the teach scriptures, verse 6, 7, and 8 of Malachi. Will model exemplary lives of faith to their congregation, verse 6 of Malachi. Be willing to call out sin in order to bring repentance, verse 6 of Malachi. And be known for and sought out as a spokesperson for God, verse 7. <coughs> Let's have a time of discussion. <laughs>